Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, government spent up big at the start of the COVID-19 crisis, but now they seem to be holding back quite a bit, even though the crisis hasn't gone away. Instead, central banks are stepping in. But does a bank's monetary stimulus really do any good at a time like this? Or is the only way for governments to continue with fiscal stimulus measures? And we'll debunk the myth that central banks create money with quantitative easing. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve King. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, there's two ways that governments and central banks have coped with this pandemic and ensured that their economies don't totally collapse. Well, not so far anyway, but, you know, the jury's still out as to how it's all going to finish. But one way is fiscal support from the government. In other words, overspending, in effect, their respective budgets. And the other one is monetary support, which means lowering interest rates, including negative interest rates, which I'd like to talk about today, and quantitative easing, basically uh, buying huge chunks of that government debt. Now, government support obviously makes sense, provided it is uh, it's spent correctly. And we, we, we do know there's limitations on that as well, because for every decision that's made by a government, there's, um, there's unknown implications about uh, how it might change behavior but what about monetary stimulus the other side the stuff that uh, that central banks are doing is there really such a thing as as uh, monetary stimulus I, I guess is the question because let's look at the three trillion us dollars added to the fed's balance sheet since april that is mainly the fed this is mainly qe the fed buying government bonds that have been bought on the second mar- secondary market mainly from the banks what does that really achieve for an economy, in this case, you know, the U.S. economy, at a time like this? Is it doing any good at all? Well, let's take one step back to what monetary policy used to be, and that used to be just changing the interest rate. Now, they can't change it anymore unless, as you say, we're going to discuss going negative because they've pushed the mm-hmm. rate down to zero, and we've been pretty close to zero or at zero ever since the financial crisis back in 2007. So conventional monetary policy used to be that you vary the interest rate, roughly speaking, twice as fast as the rate of inflation. So if the rate of inflation hits 2%, you put the rate up to 4%. Uh, and that idea was that that was supposed to push the inflation rate back down again and target a 2% rate of inflation, which they saw as their nirvana level. And this was all supposed to operate through its impact upon people's willingness to invest. So putting up the interest rate was supposed to mean that firms who, of course, could, like, you know, as, as neoclassical economists so realistically model, uh, they could rationally anticipate their future earnings, uh, you know, 30 years in the future. What's, what's wrong with that? Nothing so far as it's going to happen in 2020 they tell me um and and with that uh, known future income stream the only way you change the amount you invest is by discounting your future more and by putting up the interest rate you're forced to discount it more so this would reduce investment uh, by putting up rates reduces investment slows the economy and brings you back to equilibrium again that wonderful state that we all know by our own experience that the economics uh, system is always yeah okay so that's except when it's not which is why the, not, which is you know, if it was in equilibrium, we wouldn't need central. 
Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't need central banks to be tinkering with it if there was such a thing as equilibrium. Oh, I know, so, I know, it, I know. It is it's a serious a, argument, isn't it? But I mean, it, even if that was the case, even uh-huh. if you know changing interest rates changed your, you know, the uh, the appetite for for investment, whether now or in the future. Let me ask that again because that, that mm. noise will have come up. So even if that was the case, you know that, um, that 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 changing the interest rate changes the appetite for for investment now or in the future. That doesn't apply right now because there's no in, in appetite for investment because there's a pandemic on and everyone is scared of the future. So in a way, I mean, even if the, even if fiddling with the interest rate was t- to change that behaviour, it's not going to change that behaviour right now because of the circumstance we're in. Yeah, well, we've got to the stage where they're down to zero. And, of course, they, yeah. they used to talk about what they call the, the zero lower bound, the ZLB, uh, and the dangers of hitting the ZLB. Well, they've hit the ZLB, and they've been stuck there for a decade. So when this crisis came along, uh, just as unanticipated as the 2008, but rather more justifiably so, uh, the only tool they had left was the one they adopted after 2008, which is quantitative easing. And with quantitative easing, the, when you read the original documents of, of the Federal Reserve Monetary Policy Board. I've forgotten the precise name of the board, but it's the um, it's the decision making that has people like Ben Bernanke on it when he was chairman, and uh, and Powell on on there now. So the FOMC you're talking about? FOMC. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. The FOMC minutes said that they thought by inc- quantitative easing would increase the amount of excess reserves that banks were carrying because we will talk about the technicalities, but they literally thought banks would lend out reserves. Now, yeah. That's been something that my, my approach to economics has known has been wrong for about 60 years. Uh, and as in 2014, the Bank of England joined in and said, yes, it's true. Banks cannot and do not lend reserves. So that way, the one's out, out of the... Uh, but, 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 yeah. they, but they do it sort of indirectly, don't they? So if you've got excess reserves, because they have to hold a certain amount of reserves in, in the bank to uh, related to how much they're, they're lending out. If they've got more reserves, then in theory... They'd they'd be able to loan out more. I know they in effect are creating that money when they 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 issue in a loan, but they've got to have a backup, haven't they? Because they've got to pay other banks. They've got to transfer money as you know from their account to other accounts. So they've got to have reserves, and that obviously the size of that of the loans that they issue is going to be related to the reserves they have in the bank. So if they've got excess reserves. Then in theory, they could issue more loans, couldn't they? Well, no, they would. It's, are they at a limit set by the reserves? Of course, let's, let's just clarify one thing here. The Fed Reserve has joined about half of the OECD just recently in abolishing reserve requirements completely. So, first of all, there are no reserve requirements, which is a good start to... So it's all yeah, excess reserves. It's all excess <laughs> reserves, okay? Mm-hmm. Secondly, the... Um, uh, when you when you look at the scale of excess reserves, they used to run at pretty much zero. In other words, banks the reserves earn no earn no interest for the banks, mm. so they're an yeah. asset which is basically they're a dud asset. So you don't want to hold a dud. You'd prefer to have an asset which generates a yield, which is where loans are obviously uh, the major asset. But so are things like government treasury, treasury bonds and things like that. Um, yeah. But uh, and the causation runs in the reverse. There's a wonderful post by John Carney from some years back called Loans Create a Lot More Than Reserves. I recommend it to anybody who's puzzling over this because he pointed out that uh, though reserves aren't needed to lend, if you've lent, you need the reserves to match that lending at a later point. Um, given the given when there were requirements for for reserve requirements, so loans create uh, deposits. They create a need for the bank to have extra equity, and they create a need to have extra reserves at some future date. So you might think that if they had the excess reserves, they'd be more willing to lend. But there was no shortage of willing to lend in two thousand and six. 
And at that stage, yeah. excess reserves are effectively zero. And there's uh, there's no appetite for borrowing right now. So I mean, no. in, in, so even if the, again, if if the idea of QE and I'm looking at, you know, it's a similar uh, statement from the Bank of England uh, from their Monetary Policy mm-hmm. Committee saying uh, we use this money talking about QE, we use this money to buy new bonds from the private sector. Buying these bonds stimulate spending and investment, helping the UK economy. So, I mean, obviously, their, their argument is pretty much the same, isn't it? That we 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 give the money we give the money back to the yeah. We give the money back to the bank. The banks have got greater reserves. They believe that's going to create more spending or, or, more, or more loans and therefore more investment. You know, every time I hear something like that, I, I, I haven't actually seen the episode. It's something Matthias Griselli points out to me all the time. Uh, but it's an episode of South Park where the gnomes go around stealing underpants. And the, the logic, they have a flowchart showing what's going to happen. And they have uh, steal underpants. The second stage is question mark. Third is profit. <laughs> and this, this is another one of well, those sell underpants would be because how's it going to how is it going to stimulate the economy I mean, when you look at what actually happens with QE um, yeah. and, and the, this, the basic story is that banks and the central bank are involved in what are called open market operations all the time because the bank used to be bank used to be using open market operations to try to make sure that the interest rate remained within the target band they'd set and uh, and that got blown out of the water when massive, massive levels of excess reserves were created. So there was no more buying and selling of reserves to actually manipulate the interest rate. Was, mm. um, but nonetheless, when, when they started QE, they said, we are going to be on the buy side of those open market operations to the tune of $80 billion per month which is roughly $1 trillion per year. So the, the, the banks knew and the central bank knew and everybody knew involved in it knew that no matter what happened in terms of the, uh, the, the argy-bargy of buying and selling bonds, um, uh, the on, central on bank would always basis. step in. Over yeah. the year, they would buy a trillion dollars worth of bonds, uh, mm. more than they sold back to the to the private banks. Well, for the private banks, what that means is one of the income earning assets they have, which are treasury bonds, and, and also they bought all sorts of bonds, mortgage backed securities, all sorts of stuff. They would go down, and their reserves would go up. That in, in, in effect, the banks would make a profit in the transaction. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother selling the bonds, so mm. they make a capital gain. Um, but at the same time, they knew they were going to end up with a trillion dollars of dud ass, of dud no income earning assets in place of the trillion dollars of income earning assets they had beforehand. So they would then have to, you know, again, they're trying to make the maximum amount they can out of their assets. They would then sell, uh, use those bonds, that excess cash, the trillion dollars per year to buy risky assets, which was another mm. one of the things that the Federal Reserve legitimately said they were trying to cause the banks yeah. to do they'd buy shares now what's that 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 really is the is the underlying cause of the k-shaped recovery we've got right now because they've continued doing that for a decade they stopped for a short while when they thought they'd got through the worst of the crisis COVID has thrown them back into it again as you said they bought what three trillion dollars worth um during COVID. Mm. Uh, but that means that when you think of the causal chain the banks or the financial institutions then purchase shares. That drives up share prices. It also means that people who sell the shares to those financial institutions you have have a profit on the transaction that they they, they, they might then sell out of. So you, yeah. and then buy goods and services because of it. So you do well, that's have the, that's the argument, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's and fundamentally the, but, the, it's making the wealthy spend more, but the wealthy don't yeah. spend much to begin with. 
but I mean that is the declared state, and I used mm. to always think that uh, you know the, the the this asset pr- price inflation that you see from quantitative easing mm. was sort of like a uh, just an, an unnecessary or you know an unfortunate uh, consequence of it all. I didn't realize until it I started reading up more. It's the mm. purpose. So the Bank of yeah. England is saying pretty much like, you know, the, the Fed is saying in the United States that QE means that investment in financial assets such as shares give a higher return. And when demand for financial assets is high, with more people wanting to buy them, the value of those assets increases. This makes businesses and households holding shares wealthier making them more likely to spend, boosting economic activity. And of course, there's no problem there about increasing inequality, is there? I mean, it's so transparently So there's a council estate down the road for me, and uh, they must be loving the fact that their share prices have gone up so much. Yeah, yeah. The the one or two shares in Waitrose (laughs) they have must be worth a fortune now. So it, it it is a massive increase in inequality caused by the central banks. Uh, mm. A deliberate piece of policy, but it, it shows how on earth can you do that? Uh, you really have to be thinking about the the uh, economy as if it consists of a wait for it representative agent, which is what their mathematical models, the DSG models, are based upon, uh, which homogenise everybody and say that the this agent is not only the capitalist who owns the firms that produces the output; it's also the worker that works in the firms that produce the output. So they lump together profit. Uh, uh, income from profit and income from wages into the one consumer and then of course with that consumer having in this case a wealth effect the consumer is going to consume more completely leaving out the income distribution effect and of course even though the wealthy you know spend in a very uh, ostentatious um, veblen type way they don't spend much of their income much of their cash compared to what the working class has to spend um, mm. So it's it's a trivial way to boost the spending of the ultra wealthy and massively increase their wealth as but, well. And we see also, more inequality long, coming out of it. And how long do they expect that to go for? Because yeah, three trillion dollars added to the uh, to the Fed's balance sheet. In other words, three trillion dollars more spent on quantitative easing. If they get this, uh, it won't happen. But you know, it'll happen after the election. This attempt to try and get another two or three trillion dollars added to it. Uh, we know that this uh, this epidemic uh, pandemic is not going to go away in a hurry. So maybe another five trillion next year. And let's look at what it's done this year to uh, to the share price. The the Dow. It's pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels. It's up 20% since the beginning of May. The Nasdaq, of course, way beyond pre-pandemic levels now. Uh, 30% up since May. 30%. We're not seeing Mm. the same level in Europe because they haven't had the same degree of quantitative easing. How long do they think? And so, obviously, share prices totally unrelated to the underlying value of the companies that uh, those shares are supposed to represent. How long do they think that's going to work for? Even if even if you did accept that, you know, making the wealthy wealthier is is a good thing. How long would that go on for? How long would you keep on piling in that money mm. through quantitative easing and expect asset prices to increase? The trouble, this is the trouble of a, of a central bank only having uh, a capacity to boost the accounts of, of other of financial institutions. If they mm. had, if you had central bank digital currencies, so we all had an account of the central bank, then they'd have another mechanism, which is they could actually directly interact with the public rather than with the financial sector. But because uh, it, it's a classic old story, if you've got a, if, if all you've got is a is a hammer, then everything you see is a nail. 
and that doesn't matter whether it's a you know it's, it's a pair of tweezers or a or a screw. You hit it you hit it with a hammer. So having only that one channel, that's the only thing they can actually act upon. And consequently, you you have this ludicrous situation of an economy plunging by twenty percent and the share price market going up by twenty percent when it was already on historical levels. And looking at uh, the Case Shiller index, it was already. Close to the highest it's ever been, higher than 1929, slightly lower than uh, lower than 2000, but higher than 2007. So we've got the highest level of evaluation, with one exception, the 2000 bubble, and all they're doing is inflating it past that level. So yeah, it can go on indefinitely because, as we keep on saying on the on this uh, podcast, and and you'll find the central bank saying itself as well, it has an unlimited capacity uh, to boost the. The um, its own balance sheet because when it puts an entry in the reserve accounts of the banks by buying those bonds, it matches it by the identical uh, face value of the bonds it's purchased on its asset side. It's just expanded its balance sheet and it can do that indefinitely. Mm. So is it new money? That's the, no. the often the and this is but it, but you talk to central banks and let me give a quote from the Bank yeah. of England on their website. They say it talks about quantitative easing. We use this new money to buy bonds from the private sector. Buying these bonds stimulates spending and investment, helping the UK economy. That's it. Isn't new money, is it? Because no, they, 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 yeah. the money they're giving, they're replacing for bonds. So the bank that was holding those bonds now holds money that's worth the same as the value of the bonds they had. They could have sold it to the bank or they could have sold it to somebody else. Yeah, it's no just, difference. Yeah, it's an asset swap. And and this is, yeah. the again, Stephanie Kelton's book makes this point very, very clearly. And yeah. I think it's becoming... That's the deficit myth, by the way, for anyone who hasn't read it, which is a right. really good read. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it, it is simply a case of saying you've got excess reserves that we have created in the first place uh, by, by quantitative easing. Um, mm. uh, uh, and... And uh, we, we, we run a deficit that creates uh, excess reserves, pardon me. So you run a deficit in the first place uh, that puts excess reserves on the asset side of the bank and it puts money in people's deposit accounts on the liability side. And that's the necessary part. That's actually fiscal policy, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, but when, when the central bank does a QE, that is offering banks who now have, as you're saying, with the most recent QE, $3 trillion of cash sitting basically idle in reserve accounts. It's saying, do you want to swap that $3 trillion of non-income earning reserves for $3 trillion worth of income earning bonds? And I'll never accuse by banks of being geniuses, but they're not stupid and they're not, uh, they're not, they're not, um, non-greedy. Uh, that's, that's saying, yeah, which like a one or two percent return on three trillion versus no return on three trillion well yeah. duh yeah. they're always oversubscribed so the money creation comes for, obviously from the government in in the, they've issued those bonds to cover debt that they've uh, accrued or about to accrue that means that they are spending more money than they spent in the past and that is mm. money that's being created so that's mm. where the, the money creation doesn't make any difference whether the central bank buys those bonds back or not or whether they are that they're sold on on the open market does it no, that's right. And we, you know, we've actually, I've made mistakes in previous uh, podcasts, by the way, which I've happily admitted to after, not happily, but willing to admit after reading <laughs> Stephanie's book and then confirming it with my Minsky model. And uh, the, if anybody wants to track this down, search for OMOMO, One Mathematical Model of Modern Monetary Operations. And that just gives you the, the whole logic of, in, in the double entry bookkeeping uh, uh, layout of, of what actually goes on here. But the, the, it's simply the deficit creates the money. It creates excess reserves as well. 
the banks then uh, buy the bonds off the treasury. And the, and the main effect of the bonds in terms of the center, the bank, the, the government side of things is to mean that the government can do that without the treasury having an overdraft at the central bank. That's really the, 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 the technical role that mm. those bond sales have within the government itself. So, and obviously that is the argument behind modern monetary theory, which, by the way, there's been a bit more, people are talking about it more. There's more people in government and uh, in financial circles that are trying to discredit it. But the idea behind, which which means it must be something that's coming of its time, they must be worried. But I mean, the idea is obviously that the governments should be spending the money and because this pandemic could go on for years can they keep spending? Uh, because we know the already the level of spending has been scaled right back. Uh, so in the UK, for example, Rishi Sunak was paying 80% of furloughed workers' salaries. Now they're paying two-thirds of the salaries for businesses that have to close outright because of the government lockdown. But of course, many businesses are just losing a lot of money because they can theoretically stay open, like airlines, mm. for example, but they haven't got any passengers. Uh, so, And then we've got the situation in the US where the, the Senate can't agree on a, on a stimulus package because the Republicans are worried that some of it's going to find its way into the into the hands of states that are owned by Democrats. So there's all politics sitting behind all of this. But in theory, I mean, they could have, providing the money is spent wisely, the governments could have just carried on going into debt, issuing more and more of these uh, of these bonds. Uh, and or they, you know, do they need to go through the bond process? In fact, even I mean, could they just? I mean, we've talked about this before, haven't we? Could, well, could, Richard Murphy has been talking about this recently for the UK situation because the central bank. I think the government's issued in the UK, in the UK two hundred billion. Uh, worth of uh, pounds worth of bonds and the central bank has bought 300 billion pounds worth of bonds and what happens with the central bank purchase this is the mistake i used to make when you asked me this asked you asked me the same question i used to hedge my bets having not actually analyzed it carefully and said that when you asked does a deficit create money i would say to the extent to which central banks purchase the bonds and monetize the debt and you will see people still using that phrase saying monetizing the debt as if that's necessary to create the money in fact what the central bank when the central bank buys bonds off the treasury off off the off the uh, private banks which have themselves first bought bonds off the treasury um, that means that the bonds that they've purchased uh, they make a profit again on selling the bonds to the central bank otherwise they wouldn't make the sale um, but when they do it if they if the central bank buys 300 billion pounds worth of uh, treasury bonds off the private banks then the private banks holding of treasury bonds goes down by 300 billion and their holdings of reserves go up by 300 billion so mm. there's, it, it is zero impact on money creation. Uh, it simply means that the banks end up making a profit on the, on the, on the capital transfer, that the actual you know, capital gain. Uh, but they end up with less incoming assets and more reserves. And therefore, they're going to go back into the same old thing again of buying shares with the money. Um, so it, it's... So I go through yeah. all of that. Say I'm say I'm the government. I've got a I'm the treasury. I've got a bank account with the uh, with the central bank. I want to spend uh, a trillion dollars on infrastructure. Uh, I uh, I've got a company that uh, that Boris knows well that does infrastructure and they've <laughs> never done it before, but they can do it. Uh, and it's only going to cost a trillion dollars, a trillion pounds. Why not just transfer the money uh, from the treasury's bank account to this other company? 
uh, and, and pay them a trillion and forget about issuing bonds. Which is what's been happening. Again, in the UK, they've, uh, the normal requirement, the legal requirement, it's not at all a technical requirement, but the legal requirement is that the Treasury bonds can't be bought by the central bank directly. They have to be bought off the private banks. And with COVID, and this is something like I support them doing, uh, they've simply said, that we just want to get this done as fast as possible. So rather than going through the bond sales, the central bank, the Bank of England, apparently was buying the bonds directly off the Treasury. And that simply creates the money uh, that the Treasury then is then putting into people's, uh, it doesn't, uh, the deficit creates the money. This backs that uh, so that the Treasury doesn't go into into an overdraft at the central bank, but it's a direct purchase of those bonds by by the central bank, leaving out the financial sector. Seems a lot simpler, doesn't it? Unless you work in the financial sector, because you can't clip the ticket, which is obviously what they they want to do. What and about, this is this uh, is why they they defend they, they, the financial sector desperately wants those bonds to be created because it's mm. free money in terms yeah. of interest. It's 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 the interest stream they get. Uh, they've given the money's created by the deficit in the first place. They've got the excess reserves earning nothing. They then get off a of treasury bonds, which have a positive return. Um, and of course, they swap over, and they're not very happy when they're told we're not going to let you swap over because we've given the we've given the uh, we've, we've created the money by going through the central bank directly rather than going through you guys indirectly. Well, here's the argument that would be given, of course, by central banks and by the commercial banks is that, uh, you know, the, the very existence of government bonds gives you some stability in the banking system and that they can invest in something which, uh, you know, is, is secure and is going to pay some interest back. So it's a, it's a good thing. But if it's such a good thing, why would the central bank be buying them off everybody to try and make them give, uh, invest in riskier investments at a time when the economy is at its, uh, at its worst position ever? Yeah, I mean, it, it, we, what we really need is just make the government's money creating capability making up for the collapse of the private sector's money creating capability because yeah. the, the, the banks create money by lending more than they get back in, in repayments. The government creates money by spending more than it gets in tax, back in taxation. We have a collapse in the in the creation of money by the by the banking sector because they don't want to create those loans at the moment. There are certainly some overdraft loans going on right now, certainly in America to corporations. Um, but the usual growth of the money supply is not happening uh, from the banking sector. And at the same time, the, the rate of turnover as money has plunged, and people are, because people are earning this income, they've suddenly you're no longer employed as a as a theatre usher, uh, you're no longer employed as a taxi driver, uh, you're no longer em- employed. Um, well, the only place you are employed is in health. Um, but you have a collapse in the cash flows, and that means that people can't meet their financial commitments, which were based on a much higher level of, of income uh, before COVID hit. So, you know, th- there's no way that a pure market system can cope with this. You have to mm. use the government when the market gets smashed for six by something like COVID. And the, the reluctance to do that is actually making the situation much worse. Well, the problem is, of course, as well, uh, if some people are getting money for doing a job and other people are getting a job uh, money for not doing a job, how do you ensure that the you know, minimum level of production that you need within the country is still happening. You know, well, how do you stop everyone just going, oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to sit at home, in which case nothing ever gets done. Well, I mean, you, you have to prioritise what are essential industries in this situation. And we, I think the best analogy still is the Second World War. 
because that was a, a desperate need to produce armaments to fight uh, fight Germany and fight Japan. And that was financed by the deficit itself. The government simply issued contracts mm. to produce the weapons. I mean, some of the figures I've seen for Roosevelt's increase in the American output of munitions is just staggering. I, I, I can't recall uh, directly, but something like 50,000 tanks from zero to 50,000 tanks a year, uh, a dramatic expansion in the number of tanks, actually well beyond that, uh, a huge production of ships, et cetera, et cetera. So the government was creating the money, giving the contracts to corporations and saying, build these things for us so we can fight the war and, of course, ultimately win the war. And the right. deficit in America was 30% of GDP in 1942. It was 40% of GDP in the UK in 1940. Uh, and and most of them not paid by bonds that were issued and, uh, and no, and no, sold the bonds, on. Right. the bonds themselves just again gave you know gave the banks a way of swapping those excess reserves, which were created by the deficit out of non-income earning reserves and income earning bonds. But at the same time, if you remember people selling the war bonds, and I've, I've again I've been given a link by Nathan Tankers that I've got to, I've got to chase up on, but uh, one of one of Nathan's uh, contacts sent it to me. But when you read the documents from the um, from the Second World War, the bonds were being spoken about as a way of reducing consumption on non-military items because if the, if the household sector bought those bonds, it meant they had used money that they could have otherwise gone shopping with to, to put into bonds and get an income stream from the bonds, but that actually destroyed money. So rather than the bonds mm. creating the money which is and, and financing the war, it actually destroyed money and was really used to redirect production away from consumption items towards military items. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Wow. That's a little bit counterintuitive, but the way you've just described it makes perfect sense. Mm. So it's almost like a form of taxation, but you're getting interest back on it. You yeah, know, it's so. saying, give us, the, give us the money in the meantime, take it out of your yeah. pockets, which, of course, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you, you had rationing applying at the same time, uh, you, know, yeah. you, you, you know, cigarette rations, chicory, that's what I was trying to think of. You couldn't buy coffee anymore. You had to buy chicory because you could yeah, actually yeah. buy the, the, That was the, actually quite like chicory as a coffee substitute. I tried it once. Uh, most people in the, in the Second World War would uh, almost go shudder when you talk about chicory, but that was the alternative. Um, so with all the rationing, people were accumulating money in their bank accounts and, and trying to stop that money being spent uh, was, with, was the role mm. of the bonds. And they would have thought that by buying those bonds, they were investing in the war effort. But they were of course, they, the same, they, they, they weren't. No, the, the money would, would have been spent anyway. And this, this, this is why it's, it's such but a But easy sell, yeah. That's an example. Yeah. They, but then you can imagine that is exactly how they will have been sold. Yeah, exactly. Buy these bonds, help the war effort. Exactly. And again, that is because we have this belief that the government needs your money. It can't mm. create it, the money itself. It needs your money. Uh, and if you don't give it to them, uh, either from tax or buying bonds, then they won't have the money to, to, to fund the war, which is not the case. So we mm. were lying to people back then. We're still lying to them today. So what about uh, what about negative interest rates then? Um, we had a piece from uh, Kenneth Rogoff from Harvard, American economist, who uh, said, you know, as this pandemic rolls on, everyone's going to be hit creditors included and he says you know we're going to have years of litigation to follow we're going to have lots of debt there's going to be uh, calls to pay back bailouts if you are in debt and you know there's going to be there are going to be a lot of people in debt because they've they've loaned their way through this um he says well a negative interest rate would lift you from default i mean theoretically i guess your your, your debt will get less every day won't it 
Yeah, but the question is, how, how do you, where are you creating the negative rates and how do you create them? And this yeah, is and how, a, does it, how does it flow through to yeah, individual well, again, what they're doing? Yeah. And this, 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 this is uh, the sum, I think this, this, we, the um, Swiss central bank was doing this for a while in the post-crisis period. I think they were imposing a minus three quarters of one percent interest rate on reserves. Uh, in the belief that that would stimulate the banks to lend out reserves. And, of course, they can't lend out reserves once you know the mechanics. That's not what that's not how loans are created at all. But what it meant was the banks ended up with negative a negative asset. So an asset, you know, the, the, the excess reserves that they had at the central bank were penalising them and giving them a negative return. So, right. So n- hang on. So they've got reserves that they are paying to hold, so they'd rather not have those reserves. Hmm. And the central bank is getting them to sell bonds, which is pushing those reserves up. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it, it is a case of what this might sound weird for anybody listening to say we're describing what people are actually doing. But try to imagine how a tallmaker astronomer would try to send a, a, a rocket from Earth to Mars. Okay, he'd be trying to work out the epicycles and where's the rotation on the epicycle to send the send the rocket to Mars to. Mars doesn't sit in an epicycle. It's it it is a completely fallacious way of trying to understand the uh, the the solar system. Uh, mm. But we have because of mainstream economics and all these depart these uh, central banks are all staffed and treasuries are all staffed by mainstream economists. They've learned a model of money creation which is wrong. And even though you will get some central banks coming out and publishing a research paper saying that you can't lend reserves, that's not what happens, and that the loans create deposits, which, again, contradicts mainstream theory, nonetheless, the people making the decisions at the top level of the bank still believe this stuff, and they're trying to manage it using tollmaker economics. When I um, deposit money in a bank into my bank account, does that get added to the bank's reserves, yeah. that money that yeah. I put in? So that yeah. would explain why then if you do go into uh, into uh, negative interest rates, it, me putting money into the bank is the worst thing for them because that just adds to those reserves that they're having to pay more interest in if you've got negative interest rates. Yeah, the only, only the funny thing is the only way that banks would uh, can actually get rid of the reserves in a domestic sense, they can do it internationally uh, as well. But to get rid of the reserves is to have people take money out in cash. And yeah. in that situation, they'd rather you take out cash than ta- have than have reserves because if they're getting a negative on them, you know, they're, you taking out cash, you reduce their negative. So the thing is that when, when Rockoff talks about negative rates reducing people's debt, that means the private banks must now be offering negative rates on loans. So yeah. you'll go for a well, loan, but they, but they, you but they, and we, they also, we have seen that we have, but we have seen that in a few places. No, yeah, that's what I was trying to lead Denmark, to. If, yeah. if, if, yeah, and, but if I'm putting money into the bank and I do, a, I put in a lot, it's adding, and a lot of people do the same thing, then it is adding to those reserves, so it's pushing up the costs for, for that bank. Isn't yeah, but it? the thing is, how does the bank, how does the bank uh, give somebody a loan with a negative interest rate? So if you have a loan mm. of a million pounds and the negative interest rate is 1%, the bank is going to yeah, be yeah, paying they don't you do, Yeah, they don't, they, don't, they don't do that, but they would give you a negative interest rate on savings. Yeah. So it would be like saying, don't don't save with us. And, and yeah. so maybe a central banks look and say, well, okay, uh, it doesn't work both ways, but in terms of putting money in, don't don't put money in, spend the cash because mm. it's it's not worth it. Go and buy risky shares or something like the that. The trouble is the you spend the cash, more. the person who gets the cash puts the cash in a bank. So 
we have this uh, mm. dilemma that, yeah. that uh, it is it is just ineffective. And the whole the whole idea that interest rates are the main determinant of people's spending comes out of, again, a neoclassical mainstream view of the world in which there's no uncertainty of the future. Um, therefore, the only thing which can vary the valuation you put on investments is the discount rate. And if you go from a, a, a positive discount rate to a negative interest rate, it's discount rate, you then encourage more investment and, and more spending. What determines your willingness to invest is your expectations of the future. And they are driven with complete uncertainty, and particularly at a time like now, uncertainty rules KO, and you're not going to be investing when you have no real idea of what the hell's going to be happening in, in let alone six years and six months. So yeah, exactly. the idea you can stimulate it using negative interest rates is another piece of stupidity built on another piece of stupidity. It's another epicycle on, on the neoclassical epicycle so model of the world. So if the only way forward right now is for, you know, we can debate another time whether monetary policy is ever really an effective method. But I mean, I think we spent the last half an hour saying it's just mm. a complete waste of time right now. Mm. In which case, you know, it, it is just fiscal stimulus. It's just the work of the government that, that counts to get us through this. What does the central bank do right now? Apart from say, okay, well, we'll move, you know, Mr. Government, we'll move whatever money you need. It's basically being a channel for that happening. The other thing they could do is bring in central bank digital currencies and give us all, all, all residents of a country having a central, a central bank account, which would make it easier to do a sort of combined fiscal and monetary policy that way. Uh, you could give people money directly into their central bank accounts. Uh, and I would. I just like. Well, that's to the government's that, job, isn't it? I mean, you'd be yeah. st- completely overlapping but then, the roles but, of government. Rather than that. having to go through private bank accounts, you could go through a central bank a digital currency account. And uh, I would just. I mean, I, I know that when, uh, like, when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister of Australia and he had the crisis back in two thousand and seven, stroke eight, uh, they gave. You might remember this. Gave everybody. It was nine hundred and sixty dollars. Uh, they called it a we tax. Had two. We had two, two births of money, didn't they? We? Had, they had, had tax rebate. And of course, Australia mm. has such a, because everybody in Australia has a, has a, pays their tax through their bank account. They had all the systems in place. Apparently, and I know this from having been in the UK for a while, most people don't actually have a tax return in the, in the UK. So the Treasury doesn't have details of your bank accounts. And therefore, when they were talked, when, when the British authorities talked about doing the same thing Rudd was doing in Australia, they were told that it takes six months to set it up or something of that <laughs> nature because they simply didn't have the bank account records of a large number of taxpayers. Um, yeah. So what we if, we, if you have a central bank digital currency in place already, that obviates that problem. And then if you didn't think in a hurry, then you've got the central bank digital currency account to do it through. Right, but then would, then everyone would just have that as their main bank account. You'd just decimate the, uh, that's the banking what, sector, That's what the banks you? themselves would love about. that idea. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I, I have other <laughs> ideas in, in my place for what that uh, currency account could be used for. And you, right. could, you could, again, have limitations on, you know, you could, you could allow that money to be used, for example, for paying debt down uh, and for buying shares, but not for buying goods and services. So, this sounds like an idea we need to explore, I think, in, in a separate podcast. It sounds interesting, but we've run out of time today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, so central banks wasting their time whichever way whichever way you look at it negative rates uh, QE. QE just a waste of time hmm. 
That's what we're saying. All yeah. right. Good, okay. good to talk, Steve. Okay. Catch you soon. Okay. Meanwhile, Brexit. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, it's still going on. There's hope that there's going to be some sort of deal between the EU and the UK over the next week or so. We're going to look and ask the question. I think the answer is obvious. Is this a bad time for Brexit? It's not going to stop Boris pushing ahead at the end of the year. Uh, we'll look at the pros and cons of Brexit again and uh, why the time of year is particularly bad right now and what the stumbling blocks are. What are they having difficulty agreeing on? Uh, that's all next time on the Debunking Economics podcast later this week with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.